Hey there, Bill Shirk, the man about the woods for the Minnesota Historical Society. I have an idea for you. You need to visit the Forest History Center near Grand Rapids. You can learn about the history of Minnesota's great north woods and also the lumberjacks who lived and worked there. You can explore a recreated 1900s-era logging camp on the Mississippi River. You can also visit a 1930s forest ranger's cabin. You can climb the fire tower, walk the trails, and check out interactive exhibits about Minnesota's forests of yesterday and today. Learn more at mnhs.org slash forresthistorycenter. Hi again, everybody. Ron Shera here with another Minnesota Bound podcast and another very special guest. If you like to chase pheasants, if you have a hunting dog, you have heard of pheasants forever. Well, we're honored today to have with us the head guy of Howard. <laughs> Pick it up. We're honored again. To, or no, we're honored today to have the head. What would you call it? Bird dog? No. <laughs> Howard, King, King of the ditch parrots. <laughs> Howard Benson, CEO of Peasants Forever, is with us. Howard, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me, Ron. Well, we're going to uh, talk about uh, Peasants Forever for folks that aren't familiar with it. Um, and if, you, if you're not even interested in hunting pheasants, uh, we hope you'll stay tuned because uh, Peasants Forever, despite its name, is about more than pheasants, right, Howard? Absolutely. And it's about uh, wildlife habitat that might be for pheasants, but also bobolinks, uh, you name it, all kinds of critters, field mice, <laughs> you know. And uh, uh, but and we'll talk about this, that the grassland habitat that you people push is uh, also has benefits way beyond uh, more feathered targets, as I like to say. So we'll cover all that, Howard. Are you Excellent. ready for this? Let's go. Well, Pheasants Forever um, is a national organization, but it started in Minnesota. Tell me a little bit about yeah, it. Yeah, it did. Uh, it started way back in 1982. Uh, Dennis Anderson, the at that moment, was writing uh, an article for the St. Paul Pioneer Press, and he lamented the loss of pheasants on the landscape and what could be done to change that dynamic. And uh, a lot of like-minded people came uh, with as a result of that story, and they formed uh, at that moment uh, a small organization called Pheasants Forever that would be a habitat organization. And really the magic of that at that moment was uh, local volunteer chapters, uh, county-based chapters, would raise money locally through the classic banquet, uh, raffles, auctions, uh, a fun evening for the community, uh, but the uniqueness of the model was the dollars would stay under local control. So those individuals would decide where best they could put those habitat dollars. Uh, and, and honestly, at that moment, it was purely 100% habitat is that was their message. 40 years later, we are still a habitat organization. And although we have some incredible tools out there and broad tools and impacts, we're still that habitat organization. I can't help but think of uh, the optimism that reigned there and optimism in the face of overwhelming odds that you're not going to move the needle, if you think about it. I mean, a little banquets, uh, 
to raise some habitat and the cost of land and the cost of everything. Uh, yet, um, there are enough believers and even more believers now. Pheasants forever, as you say, 40 years. You've grown to how many members nationwide now? Right now, we're at 120,000 members coming out of this two years of COVID. Uh, so it's, uh, uh, but I think maybe more importantly than the 120,000 members are the partnerships that we've built with the broad uh hunting and conservation uh, organizations. So, um, you know, we're, we help form what's called the American Wildlife Conservation Partners. Uh, and that's 50, at the moment, 50 of the largest wildlife organizations in the country. That group represents something in excess of 6 million hunter conservationists out there. And we work together, whether it's in Washington, D.C., carrying that message. So we recognize we can't do all of this ourselves. Uh, and I think uh, recognizing there are so many organizations and agencies that we have a common mission with that really allows us to, you know, in the in the last 40 years, we've impacted over 20 million acres. Uh, and uh, we think we can double that in half the time at right now. That's remarkable. I mean, if you look back, who... Who would have thought that? Yeah, and I, I agree. I, I don't think we could have ever imagined. Uh, you know, I came to Pheasants Forever uh, as a volunteer at about year two or three to help them with some uh, some accounting needs. I, in another lifetime, I was in public accounting. I uh, helped them set up the first accounting system for those volunteer chapters. And uh, the first time I presented this, you know, and I'm doing air quotes here at the national meeting. It was in Wilmer, Minnesota, and there was about a hundred people that showed up. Uh, to, and I was talking specifically to treasurers, but within one year, when we designed this system, it be, was already obsolete because there was 50 chapters. I mean, they went from 12 chapters to 50 chapters in less than a year. Uh, and so, so to kind of your observation, who could have imagined how fast this organization could grow? And I think the uniqueness of the model, the empowerment of allowing local volunteers to determine where they could greatest uh, use of their dollars on their resident landscape would be the, the difference in this organization's growth. And this year, as we roll into our year-end June 30. 2022, we'll break a hundred million dollars as an organization, and we're driving in excess of two million acres annually uh, in, in the ground. And these are grassland acres; these are native prairies. Um, and the mission, and you touched on it, is in your opening. The organization is more than just pheasants, and of course, we have our Quail Forever uh, organization as well. But if you think about being a habitat organization, we impact not only ground nesting birds, upland birds, but water, soil, pollinators, monarchs, uh, and carbon sequestration that's happening on that landscape with those grasslands. Um, so, and people who uh, have no interest in hunting are a part of this organization because they believe in that broad landscape uh, impact that we're having. We're going to go back and talk about some of those points you raised, but I want to go uh, to um, the land that you get now, uh, that you impact, I should say. Uh, you're not talking about you're acquiring all this, are you? Or no, we're not. I mean, it's both. So 
you know, on average, currently, like I said, we, last year we set a record and did 2.2 million acres. Uh, the majority of that is private working lands. These are working farms and ranches that we're finding room to do conservation on. So you, you have, uh, uh, let's talk about that a little bit, because you have what's called Farmville biologists. Yes. I mean, it kind of says it all, but w what do they do? Yeah. So these are wildlife professionals, uh, all degrees, either in wildlife or agriculture, and they have the ability uh, through, again, partnerships, uh, funding, whether it's our Natural Resource Conservation Service, Minnesota DNR, 30 other state Department of Natural Resources, uh, we hire these individuals. They're able to sit down at the kitchen table with producers, farmers and ranchers on, these are working lands, um, and find those corners and edges and uh, honestly acres that never should have been farmed to begin with. And we can, uh, those individuals can give them federal and state programs that would give them an economic benefit uh, not to farm those acres. And what the public gets is cleaner water, uh, carbon sequestration, building soils on acres that never should have been farmed to begin with. They're not uh, economically viable to farm. Uh, so we can be smarter about how we use that landscape. And really that's the skill set of those individuals. And we have 325 of those spread around 30 states right now. Uh, and they're really driving that message. Uh, Do they drive around and knock on doors, say, hey, I can help you uh, grow some grassland where where you can't grow anything else, or do, do farmers uh, seek you out and apply, or has, maybe it's both ways? Huh? Yeah, it does work both ways, but the majority of them are uh, farmers and ranchers who knock, who come to their Department of uh, Ag offices locally, and if they ask that question of, you know, what can I do for the, with conservation, uh, who should I talk to, they'll point them down to our employee who typically works out of, and again, the acronym NRCS, Natural Resource Conservation Service. Um, we are housed there. Uh, they'll point them down the hall and that individual can help them build that conservation plan, do the paperwork, which is grueling. Uh, so I'll take that, you know, that, that off the plate of that producer um, and give them some opportunity to do some really great things on their working farm. That's really the meat of some of your operations. It really is. That's that's who we are. That's what we do. Our volunteer chapters continue uh, to work with local landowners, and they do about 300,000 acres annually. So these young fire eaters, I call them, these 325 wildlife professionals out there in the landscape, they're impacting in excess of 2 million acres annually right now. And we think this year we'll break that record as well. So, But it's a toolbox that comes from the farm bill. So there comes the... Farm Bill biologist, and Farm Bill obviously uh, is specifically designed at least Title II of that bill in Congress that comes every five years is specifically for conservation title. So what are those things that uh, we can help those producers be smart about their production? Um, and we, we also have precision ag specialists that, again, can take all of that information from a producer from... Uh, depreciation on equipment to fuel to chemical costs to um, how they treat that land. And we can uh, not look at a total farm income, but we can drill down into almost a square meter of whether that's a, an efficient use. Are they making money by growing corn or soybean or wheat on, yeah. that, on that meter? And if they're not, 
here's a program that would give them a safety net. Uh, I bet you what also happens, and we have to take a break here, Howard, but I'm guessing farmers like to talk among themselves. Hey, how'd you, how'd you get that thing there? What, or, that's really neat. You know, I see you got some pheasants now or what, what, blah, blah, blah. They talk to each other and, hey, how can I get in? And so that's, that helps it grow. Absolutely. You want that ripple effect. You want people looking over those producers' fences, and they do that, Yeah. right? They're paying attention to what's happening in their community. Well, thank you, Howard. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the value of grasslands beyond more than pheasants, and we've touched on it a little bit. But first, a word from Hewitt Docks. Hewitt Docks lifts and pontoon legs began in a small south-central Minnesota town with a mission to make dock install and removal easier by inventing the roller dock. Well, now the company has evolved to provide everything you might need to improve your lake time. In addition to the classic roller dock or the new ultra dock system, Hewitt offers all-terrain staircases, gangways, canopies, and lifts, along with any accessory you might need. Celebrate 50 years of business with us. Go to HewittRad.com to enter for a chance to win a free dock and monthly prizes. Hewitt Docks, lifts and pontoon legs. Work hard, play harder. You deserve a Hewitt. Hey everybody, Bill Shirk, the man about the woods. It's time to plan your fall hunt in North Dakota. Get this, with an estimated 3.4 million breeding ducks, North Dakota's central region is prime habitat for hunting waterfowl. In fact, right now, the state's breeding duck index sits 38% above the long-term average. And the water's up, too. The spring water index is up 616% over 2021. That's a good thing. Now, when you consider that North Dakota has approximately 700,000 acres of private land open to public walk-in hunting, guess what? You've got an outdoor oasis. For the latest information about public hunting lands and private land open to sportsmen and women, visit North Dakota Game and Fish Department. Bag your limit in fall. Bag your limit this fall in North Dakota. Visit legendarynd.com. Okay, welcome back to another segment of our Minnesota Bound podcast. Special guest, the um, head head bird guy. No, I, I've tried that line. Uh, I'll be uh, I'll be more upfront here. The CEO and president of Pheasants Forever, Howard Vincent, with us today. Howard, again, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ron. Um, we've talked about the growth of Pheasants Forever. Um, some of the basic stuff they do, the their impact on on land uh, for conservation purposes. Um, and you and I have both talked privately about the Pheasants Forever was initially, uh, oh, here's another organization. They want a, they want more feathered targets out there, whoop-de-dingle. Why should I help them shoot more birds? And Pheasants Forever slowly, uh, and probably never was really, if people understood the value of uh, grassland habitat, which is primarily your your emphasis, grassland habitat has a lot more to do uh, with other things besides pheasants. Yes, absolutely. Um, so if you think about where wildlife resides, it's in those grasslands, you know, and that's our focus. Uh, if you think about waterfowl, uh, and you sure think about water, and you should, 
But where do they nest? They nest in the uplands. They nest in those grasslands. And so, and and, and we're using grasslands because it's a it's a national view. Uh, but in each geography is uh, you, you can re refine that discussion. So if you're in the northwest, you could be talking about a sagebrush step that that is uh, eleven state. Uh, geography in the Northwest, and you can talk about the poster child there of challenges, which is the sage grouse. Uh, that's been considered to be listed uh, a number of years ago as an endangered species, but we have a plan forward. U.S. Fish and Wildlife determined that there is uh, the ability to uh, impact that bird, and it is grasslands in that sage step. And as you move across the Midwest, you're talking about you know the loss of uh, prairie, whether that's short, mixed, or tall grass prairie. And we, in the last decade, we've continued to lose acres. Uh, the size of Nebraska is wow. uh, those grasslands that we've lost. So um, we've, we've drawn a line in the sand fig figuratively to reverse that trend. Uh, and then you can go run into the Southeast and you can talk in the quail range and you can talk about pine savannas. And this is grasslands. If you want to have quail, if you want to have, uh, you know, turtle burrowing turtles that are uh, an, an endangered species, you're going to do it in the grasslands. And all these things impact uh, water quality. They impact soil health. They impact, uh, they sequester carbon that I mentioned, on pollinators that, and monarchs. I mean, the list goes kind of on and on. On that topic, um, you know, climate change is a big uh, topic now in the media and uh, government, et cetera. And uh, grassland, as you mentioned, they sequester the carbon. I've often wondered, I have no data to back this up, but perhaps instead of campaigning for all electric cars, because we, then we need the electricity, um, would we be better off having a massive grassland program to sequester carbon? Uh, might get us out of the uh, out of the climate change. Absolutely. Issue. So there's a there's a bill that we're trying to push forward, and it's a national grasslands act. Um, we were we were targeting about three hundred and twenty five million dollars annually to secure more grasslands, protect what we have, uh, improve what has already and taken away, uh, and it won't go through into this Congress, but we're pushing hard on the next Congress to have that exactly. But again, reaping all those benefits, um, and these are dollars that uh, the federal government would get a huge return on. The general public would get a huge return. If we can impact those acres um, in the grasslands, we think it's uh, in excess of 20, 30% reduction in carbon. And if you want to equate that to cars, it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cars taken off the, the street. Uh, it's, uh, it's an incredible thing. Um, and again, um, I would argue that it's uh, not just carbon, but water. Um, we've spent the last hundred years trying to accelerate water into our streams, into our uh, off the landscape. And the impact, you know, for us, especially in the upper Midwest, the start of the Mississippi, um, we've got a Gulf of Mexico that has, you know, is essentially dead. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not because of an oil spill. It's because of what we've put in the water starting up in Minnesota 
through Iowa, through Missouri, all the way down, um, we can put in resilient systems that existed forever and we can put them back. We can put in buffers. We can restore things. Uh, we can't put enough concrete in that flood season to prevent flooding in communities. Um, natural systems could do that. So at this moment, nationally, we're trying to slow water down. We're trying to keep it where it's supposed to be. Right. Uh, No-till farming right. uh, is a great thing for producers because it holds more moisture in the soil. It reduces these, erosion. Right. And these drought systems that we're seeing now, these climate extremes, let's use natural systems to fix this. Interesting. Uh, I got to share with you another one of my brilliant thoughts a long time ago when ethanol first came on the scene because they mentioned corn and they mentioned uh, wood uh, fiber. They also mentioned grassland. And I thought, wow, here we could convert a lot of ground to grassland in the name of ethanol. You don't have to replant it. You, it grows back by itself. There's no, no cost to doing it all. And it sounded like a Wonderful win-win for wildlife, water, and ethanol. And none of that happened. And I think, I think the corn uh, growers, uh, uh, lobbyists, uh, made sure it didn't happen. One thing I heard was, well, this grassland is too cumbersome to haul to the ethanol plants where corn is so easy. Uh, it could be true, but subsequently I've heard that, well, they could have bailed it. <laughs> I mean, you go, but... Uh, sadly, that idea seems to be dead, but it would still, and you can make ethanol out of grass. Yeah, and so the term is cellulosic, is the kind of the science behind it. And I, and I, you know, you, we can sure look at the history of that and the whys and the why nots. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I think the science uh, could be there now as it's scalable. Um, and I think originally in the challenges that cellulosic had to be within 50 to 60 miles of its need and uh, just for transportation costs sure. and things like that. So, I mean, there are so many aspects of that. And, you know, for us, that's, that's really not our business. As uh, a city boy, those are things I'm not sure, even thinking about. Sure. But. You know, from a, from a habitat organization, a conservation organization, uh, and again, working with tens of thousands of farmers every single year, uh, to help them make conservation plans on their uh, farms. It's, it's not our business as an organization what they grow or what that uh, product is used for, whether it's food, fuel, or fiber. Um, but we believe there's room for conservation on every single farm, and, and, and that's the magic. So our business isn't farming, but our business is working with farmers uh, so they can have uh, viable, economic, sustainable operations they need to feed their families. We need to feed a world. Mm -hmm. uh, we understand that. So how can we do this smart? Mm -hmm. Every farm has uh, what they used to call, maybe they still do odd places or odd lots, et cetera. Yes. And uh, it's just sitting there and with a little work, it could be really productive for wildlife or butterflies or you name it. So yeah, that works. Um, you're... Enthusiasm for Pheasants Forever after all these years hasn't seemed to diminish much at all. What is it that keeps you smiling as you are right now? Um, so, I mean, my journey here was 
you know, kind of wholly unique, right? I mean, again, I came from public accounting. A friend of mine volunteered me to go help this organization. And of course, my first question was pheasants for who? What, you know, <laughs> why, and why did you volunteer me yeah. <laughs> to go help with this? Uh, and in the end, uh, when I came here, I was the first director of finance in 1987. Uh, or, that organization at that time had grown to about a million dollar organization uh, impacting, you know, 100,000 acres a year or something like that, which was great. Uh, but when I came, it was a job. I mean, the handshake was I'm going to be here for a very, you know, single digit number of years, three to five years, I'm going to help set up internal systems, uh, infrastructure, and then I'm going to move on. Mm -hmm. And then I started, you know, rubbing elbows and hanging around our chapter volunteers, uh, wildlife professionals, and the missions really started to rub off on me. Uh, I think I also saw you, we would run into each other in some pretty nifty hunting places. So I think that was sort of a perk of the job. Absolutely. Sure. Sure. It was, <laughs> you know, and that's, you know, and I, and I was, I grew up hunting, you know, I, I'm originally from Duluth, Minnesota, grew up grouse hunting and I didn't, you know, have my first pheasant hunt until I think it was mid twenties. And, uh, and I didn't quite get it. Right. I mean, grouse hunting in Northern Minnesota is like, you know, watching a Nolan Ryan hearing a Nolan Ryan fastball, right? <laughs> right. It sounded like it went low and away. Right. And then to come to pheasant range and have, and, and I never hunted with a dog in Northern Minnesota. So to have a good hunting dog out in front of you that points the bird with no trees in the way. Right. I, I actually have for a moment had a thought about the fair chase, right? <laughs> the ethics of this. And then you realize how fast those birds are, right. how you know, resilient they are. Easily missed. Easily missed. And, you know, that's pilot error. So, yeah, right. Um, but, uh, and so absolutely hunting was a part of it, but that um, the greater good. And I, I had two boys, two young children at that time, and it became more meaningful for me in their eyes, mm -hmm. right? Or, or that this would be impact. I, I love what I did in public accounting. I love my clients, but it was a lot of necessary evils. And here, this was really meaningful. And right. um, so, boy, uh, 36 years later. Wow. Um, and, I, and I am more excited about the organization now than I've ever been. The opportunities that exist out there well beyond the hunting community. Right. Uh, the, the, the work that we do, and uh, whether it's someone who's turning on the tap in downtown Minneapolis who's never hunted and would never hunt in their lives, we're relevant to the things that they're doing and the small communities are their water tables. Uh, if you've got wells in your community, we're buffering those wells so that chemicals aren't running into those. Um, you know, the Worthington water wells project was one of those. We're going to talk, talk more about that. Um, but I just have to add this now, you know, you're a rough grouse hunter. I love rough grouse too. I love pheasant hunting. Pheasants are delicious birds on the table, but this might be sacrilegious saying this to a Pheasant Forever CEO, but rough grouse is so much. There is nothing better than rough grouse. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all in on that. I mean, that's the walleye of birds. <laughs> there, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, the, uh, Howard, will, we're visiting with Howard Vincent, CEO of Pheasants Forever. We're going to talk about what's in the future for Pheasants Forever after this word from Minnesota Propane Association. 
Reducing carbon emissions is good for everyone, but how do we reduce emissions while also meeting our world's increasing energy needs? Using propane is an excellent way to reduce emissions while meeting energy needs today. Propane is a clean, non-toxic energy source that helps reduce carbon emissions right now. In fact, propane's carbon intensity score in Minnesota is only 80. Grid electricity in Minnesota, including wind and solar, has a much higher carbon intensity score of 136. Who knew that using propane was much cleaner than electricity? Plus, the abundance of propane and growth of renewable propane means it can be used for generations to come. Millions of Americans rely on propane to heat their homes and businesses, fuel vehicles on-road and off, and much more, making propane the right energy right now. Find out more about what propane can do for you and the environment by going to propane.com. Here in Minnesota, cabin life is a way of life. It has been for the Shirk family for a long time, like 40 years. You know, fishing, it's the boat rides, the evenings on the dock, the grilling out, the loon call at sunrise. It's all the things we love about life up north. But our family just experienced a big change at the cabin. We have coped with that sulfury smelling, sour tasting cabin well water since I was just a little kid. But guess what? It all disappeared like two weeks ago, thanks to our brand new Connecticut water softener and K5 drinking water system. The install literally took like four hours and completely changed our cabin water legacy. No more smell. It's gone. The drinking water tastes incredible. No more bottled water. Soap and shampoo, they now foam in the cabin shower. It is all thanks to Connecticut. I want you to call Connecticut like the Shirk family did and schedule your consultation and look forward to clean, safe water. Truly, it's that simple. Hi there, Ron Shera here for Star Bank. If you're putting your money into mega banks down the street, who knows where that money's being used? Bank locally. Keep your money local with a community bank that actually cares about you, your family, your business, and your goals. Check out the bank we use at Minnesota Bound. Try Minnesota's own Star Bank. You can find them online at starbank.net. When you call Star Bank, you actually hear a real living person answering the phone. StarBank has 10 convenient locations around Minnesota to serve you and all the mobile banking products that you need to manage your money. Check out all that StarBank has to offer at StarBank.net. Hey, welcome back to our third and final segment here on Minnesota Bond Podcast. Special guest, uh, we're talking pheasants. We think we're talking pheasants, but we end up talking about clean water, grassland, butterflies, you name it. But we're talking with Howard Vinson, CEO of Pheasants Forever. Uh, Howard, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, Pheasants Forever, because of its name, this is sort of a single-purpose organization, uh, but that wasn't true then, really, and it's not true now. Uh, and 40 years later, uh, uh, Pheasants Forever continues to make a big impact on the ground, yes, in part for pheasants, but uh, Pheasants Forever is, is uh, what's, what's down the road for them? Well, I think, you know, again, I think my statement that, you know, the, the core of our organization is our chapters. And we've got 750 of those across the country, all volunteer-driven. They raise money locally uh, and then decide where those monies can best be spent. Uh, our ability now to take their $1 uh, 
and make it $4 through our partners. And, and we do almost nothing by ourselves here. So the fact that chapters raise, you know, nice and neat $25 million net annually, we're able to match that three, four times, making us this $100 million organization. But those dollars are driven into the ground, uh, whether that's, you know, 2.2 million acres, whether that's in Washington, D.C., fighting for more programs. Um, our chapters help fund that drive. So we're building a bigger, better toolbox uh, in resources and real meaningful programs in Washington. Uh, and then also, you know, uh, from a education and outreach, how do we get more people involved in the outdoors? So that's the base of our organization. The greatest opportunity right now is well beyond that hunting tent um, and, and in my words, for, let's forget about the tent. We want to grow our impact and need for mission. Uh, it's going to be people that haven't typically been sitting at the table with us. Um, in the last uh, two years, we've had commodity, national commodity groups uh, come to us and work together. And this never has happened in 38 years. I would say we're probably incorrectly diametrically opposed, but now we have as national sponsors, the National Corn Growers Association. Uh, why, the, would they, why would they sponsor Pheasants Forever? I mean, you know, they, they want to grow corn and you, they you want to grow grass. Yes, but they recognize that their producers need to be sustainable and they can't continue to grow corn on acres that do not make that producer a dollar, where they're actually losing money. And we have that expertise, again, to take out those acres that are marginal in nature. Um, they recognize the importance of that. So we have corn, cotton, uh, sorghum. Uh, we're talking to the Soybean Association. These are all national trade groups for those commodities. Uh, where they're funding joint positions for precision agriculture for their producers. So we can agree on about 80% of things, and we're going to let that other 20% where we disagree, we're going to let that go. And I think that's been the magic. Uh, we're looking at the landscape differently, not just private lands and producers, but those other areas like right-of-ways, the sides of highways. If you think about the corridor, energy corridors, where mm. pipelines, uh, uh, electric lines are running, you see a lot of grasslands in there, but they're typically monocultures and monocultures are bad in nature. They right. provide uh, soil protection, but give no wildlife benefits. And so if you think about pollinators and monarchs, and if you uh, absolutely three out of every five bites of food that you take need to be pollinated, and we're in this uh, detriment where 10% of the native bees are left. Um, We've got some problems. There. Right. And including monarch butterflies, they're right. at 10% and they're uh, teed up to be listed as an endangered species. I just thought of another project too, in my travels for uh, the flush TV show, which is sponsored by pheasants forever. Um, Nebraska, Kansas, especially you see the pivots. Yeah. There. Center pivots. <clears throat> and every corner, there's a triangular piece of ground that one rancher, pointed out to me one time that he used to try to grow something in those a crop of some kind. But he said it finally dawned on him the, the, the problem of trying to plant a triangular piece of ground like that. And it wasn't getting any water. So if the, if he didn't get any water, it was an effort for nothing. Right. That circular pivot. Right. And so he, 
came around, and he loved to hunt pheasants, so he came around to putting uh, grasslands in those four pivot spots, those triangles, triangles and, and um, very successful, and the pheasants loved it. There were yes. all kinds of birds. So to me, but then you drive down the road, there's another guy with the pivots, and he's, he's still trying to grow something there. Yes. Uh, that would be a, a, as if you need another project, but that, that to me would be a very meaningful effort to try to convince more landowners to yeah. do that. And that program exists, and that's part of, uh, there's a program in there, and it's Corners for Wildlife. Uh, many states have adopted those. There's, um, there's kind of two parts of a uh, conservation title. There's a general sign-up of C Conservation Reserve Program, uh, which happens uh, through the announcement through Department of Ag. And then there's continuous practices that any producer can come in any day of the week uh, and look at these programs. Corners for Wildlife is in many of those Wonderful. Uh, states. So you, you, have you have original thought, and we were on it. We're that good. <laughs> A lot of potential there. Uh, just about out of time here, Howard, but uh, as we talked about, uh, I know Pheasants Forever is not getting away from uh, the hunting community, but it sounds to me like you're reaching out to other communities to be part of them as well. Um, uh, where it's, yes, this habitat will likely produce pheasants or quail or, and a bunch of other things, but you're, you're trying to make sure that um, your efforts are across different publics. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. I think, you know, the word that we use is being relevant. Uh, we're relevant to every single person in the United States on what we do on this landscape. Again, we don't, this isn't by ourselves. There's incredible partners out there that we work with every single day. Uh, and that's kind of who we are. We're not promising anyone that there'll be a pheasant in every pot. Uh, but we know that without, uh, native grasslands, without wild prairies and places, there will be no wildlife. And pheasants are that canary, you know, in the coal mine. And quail are that species, you know, that poster child for, you know, challenging our success out there. But um, we've got chapters and organizations that we work with that uh, don't have quail or pheasants anywhere near them. But they're, again, they're working on pollinators or monarchs. And for us, yeah. it's pure mission because the same thing that a baby chick needs which is in the first 20 days, they only eat protein, which is bugs. The only thing that produces bugs is native prairie and forbs, wildflowers, which is exactly what pollinators need, which is, uh, you know, if you think about milkweed, that's, the, that's what monarch butterflies need. That's in that mix. That produces bugs. That's why it makes sense in the crossover. And, you know, let's go back to water. If we did everything right for water, this world would be a much better place. Well said. Howard Vincent, thank you for joining us today and um, uh, admired your leadership at Pheasants Forever. And, and uh, I know you're thinking of uh, stepping down one of these days. But in the meantime, Howard, uh, for you, my wish is Pheasants Forever. That about does it. We want to thank our sponsors, Minnesota Propane, Hewitt Docks, Connecticut, my favorite water, Star Bank, one of the great chains, and the Minnesota Historical Society. 
Well, that's it for me, Ron Shera. Thank you for listening to our Minnesota Bound podcast. And remember, introduce a kid to the great outdoors. Mm-hmm.